0: How are Indian immigrants saving Canadian hockey? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Shikha Dalmia. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Shikha Dalmia. Shikha is a senior analyst at Reason Foundation and a columnist at The Week. And she also writes regularly for Reason, The Wall Street Journal, and USA Today, just to name a few. She regularly writes on the topic of immigration, and one of our articles, Indian Immigrants Are Saving Canadian Hockey, is something that will inform a lot of our conversation today and has given our episode its namesake. Shaka, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Thanks for having me on, Alex.
0: So, Shaka, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the answers lead us. Our question today is how are Indian immigrants saving Canadian hockey? Of course, broadly, we're talking about whether immigrants ultimately join a culture and strengthen it, or as some may say, interrupt and weaken it. And, and we'll get to that. But let's start with this great story about the Canadian Indian love for hockey and a great Canadian broadcaster that you based your article on. Why don't you take a few minutes? I'll turn it over to you and you can give us a nice summary of that story and we can all sort of set the tone with that.
1: Yeah. So um, you know, uh, I am not a hockey player, far from it. But my son, who grew up in the United States, has been an avid hockey player, and he's the one who actually turned me on to this personality on uh, Canadian television, whose name is Harnarayan Singh. He is a Sikh, comes from the same ancestral province of Punjab that in northern India that I come from and he has lo- he has launched something called hockey night in canada punjabi edition which does the same hockey night in canada that you have in english but except he does it for the punjabi speaking asian audience and this show has and you uh, your Canadian viewers uh, or listeners might will know this even better than me it started he started this in 2009 about and it has really taken off and this show has not just ignited the imagination of the uh, Canadian Indian and uh, Asian Indian community but actually it's developed a very very popular following outside of its ethnic enclave. And uh, added, and this is happening at a time when uh, the interest in the game uh, is beginning to flag a little bit among regular, you know, what they called old stock Canadians. Stephen Harper, as you know, uh dis- described uh, hockey as uh, sort of the national common denominator and i think one can even say it's something of a national religion in canada so it was it was you know it's a little bit of a of a mystery and also uh, somewhat uh, concerning that uh, the sport should be, uh, you know, not enjoying the kind of popularity it has. And just to throw some numbers at you, um, you know, uh, NHL, the big National Hockey League, uh, consists of both the United United States and Canada. And uh, although Canada has a tenth of the U.S.'s population, Canadians were 75 percent of the NHL in 1980, now they are they are actually only fifty percent, and so that's a decline. So something has to happen to flag this, uh, you know, declining participation and declining audience in the game. And this show by Ryan Singh has, you know, seems to be making a a big difference by bringing in minorities. Asian minorities, but even other minorities into the sport and opening this whole sport up to them and reviving what is sort of a Canadian tradition.
0: And one of the cool things as well that the article touched on was how that this is not only important for the players that may for instance pick up hockey as they're inspired by Mr. Singh, but, but also that families are being brought together, immigrant families specifically, are, are able to enjoy the sport now because maybe it's in a language they enjoy uh, and, and I thought that was a very interesting aspect. Also.
1: Right. So, you know, the Ryan's story is extremely interesting. You know, he grew up uh, in a small town near Calgary and uh, it's a um, you know, few thousand people and he describes himself his family uh, you know, which is a typical Asian Indian family. Father is a math teacher or math professor, PhD in math mother is also a school teacher and he had no interest in academics but he was uh, uh, you know, he was a fanatic of about ice hockey and the family was. So they grew up watching the sport, completely crazy about the sport. Uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, was not just a, you know, a hero in the household. He was actually something like a god. They would celebrate his birthday by making traditional Indian sweets. And uh, Harnarayan Ryan in his school became really popular as sort of this kind of like know it all of about hockey and things. Hockey. And even though he's an observant, see- which means that he wears you know he doesn't shave his face he wears a turban on his head Uh, he became actually kind of very popular in his school Um, and uh, so when he grew up he you know he says he you know he he always he always dreamt of being a sportscaster which is kind of difficult given that he grew up you know, uh, 30 years ago, and Asian Indians didn't have the kind of acceptance that they do uh, they do now. Uh, you know, he he wasn't sure if he'd ever make it into television and into sports, but. He, he kind of, because he was so encyclopedic about the sport and so dogged, he actually uh, did several gigs. He went to broadcasting school and then he went to uh, work uh, on CBC in Toronto. Uh, felt like, you know, they would never give him a break. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, he actually went to t- uh, the Sports Network in Toronto. Felt like he would never get on air, so he moved back to Calgary and joined CBC, where he got his first break when uh, uh one of the sportscasters over there was thinking of you know diversifying the game a little bit and uh getting it uh getting it broadcast in other channels. So um uh, so he was called just as sort of a pilot, as a pilot to do um uh, you know, to start calling plays uh, of uh d- during the playoff season. And at, at CBC, you know. On one hand, it was great that it was trying this new format. On the other hand, it you know it didn't really have the funds to do what was necessary to make the you know gay, take it to a really high sort of production level, um, right. and they kept canceling the game. And every time it was interesting, they'd cancel the game. And South Asian. Our South Asians would be, you know, protesting. They would be writing into the station because this game had become, this, or this show had become so popular with the local South Asians. So they never could kind of stop it. And one of the things that Harna Ryan says is that, uh, since this game was being uh, broadcast in Punjabi, they had to invent a whole new language for some of the hockey terms that didn't exist in, uh, you know, they, that didn't have a Punjabi equivalent. Right, right. But what this did was it demystified the game for Asian Indians who spoke Punjabi, including really old, like, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers. And it kind of became sort of, you know, Sunday or Saturday evening event for the whole household where they'd all sit around their televisions like we you know we used to do in the old days and watch and uh and they started watching his hockey broadcast and he says There are so many old grandmothers who come to him, you know, and they are literally like weeping because they feel like they've they finally have something to bond over with their grandchildren because this sport is in Punjabi. They all have, you know, they all understand the rules. They are following all the teams. And so it's become sort of like a bonding experience across generations in, you know, in the Asian, Indian, Punjabi, Indian community. Uh, which is sort of heart, heartwarming that this should happen. I mean, I can only imagine my grandmother, you know, uh, when uh, 80, 90 years old and really taking to a sport like this, which she, you know, you it's it's kind of like hard to imagine that this would have happened, but it has.
0: And here's something that may be counterintuitive to some who may say, for instance, that oh, if a group of immigrants come here, or minority group, uh, their numbers grow in a certain country, you'll see them bringing their traditions and their culture over, and that's going to become more dominant. But but here, in reality, what we've seen um, is not only somebody who is a Canadian with with Indian heritage becomes a broadcaster for a Canadian sport, but also he's bringing joy to tons of people with this show that are latching on to a Part of Canadian heritage, as opposed to coming in and 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 changing it for what some people may see as, the, as worse. So I find it very interesting that here again, this is this might be counterintuitive to a lot of people who who may think that, that this isn't exactly what immigrants do. But but here we are. That there's a bunch of uh, immigrant groups and 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 a minority group celebrating hockey.
1: Right. I mean, in Canada, you know, the the foreign born population is even greater than in the United States. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, in the U.S., it's like fourteen percent of the population is foreign born. And in Canada, twenty percent and nine percent are actually Asia, uh, you know, South Asians. And you know, one would imagine that uh, among South Asians, since cricket is sort of the you know obsession back, you know, in that part of the world, that they would come and they would start playing cricket, which they actually do. It's not to say that a lot of them don't play cricket; they do. But they are also simultaneously, uh, you know, they have also become hooked to hockey. So it's not like uh, cricket is in and hockey is out. It is more that they follow both sports, but they really taken to hockey because that's kind of like the sport that in a way makes them feel, you know, more Canadian than cricket does. And so and in and by doing that, they are bringing a new energy and, a, you know, a whole new dimension to the sport that didn't exist and reviving it in the process. So, uh, yeah, so it is counterintuitive. Uh, but it's actually, you know, this is not the only example of it. There are many mm-hmm. such examples of such this kind of cultural revival of internal native traditions by, uh, you know, by immigrants. Um, uh, so yeah, so counterintuitive, but yes, it's it's very real.
0: One of the things I like about your article uh, as I was reading through it, I'll read it, the title again for the listeners who may want to click it on in our episode notes or Google it. That's Indian immigrants are saving Canadian hockey. If, if you Google that, you'll sh- surely find it. One of the things I like about the article Article is that the way it's structured, it, it doesn't just tell the story of Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi edition and Mr. Singh. It, it also talks about a, a lot of different uh, things to consider when it comes to immigration. And one of the points you bring up in the article is that you say that, you know, cultural assimilation, counter to what some people may, may believe, is, is kind of actually usually not not a matter of active choice, you say. There, there tends to be a lot of pressure on immigrants uh, to assimilate to, to, certain, uh, to certain cultural aspects of the dominant culture they're in. And... It's interesting that uh, you say as well that yes, on the one hand, although there may be some pressure felt by certain immigrants to, 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 for instance, like a certain sport like hockey, uh, people are also finding that it's not just about assimilating or melting in, if you will, with the culture. That in fact, hockey is tying. Uh, or or should I say, strengthening the bind that some people feel that their ethnic group has with white Canadians or or let's say old stock Canadians. And I thought that was a really interesting aspect.
1: Right, right. So, you know, yes, usually if you look at the literature on immigration, the academic literature on immigration, and you know, what researchers have found is that, you know, no immigrant comes to uh, any country uh, and says, you know what, I am just going to become one with this country. Like, Today, right? I mean, like, you know, they come here for the economic opportunity. They come here because they are escaping persecution in their own countries. And, you know, and they are very deeply nostalgic for all the things that they leave behind. But and so and yet they somehow assimilate and the standard view is that assimilation is something that happens to immigrants while they are making other plans so you know they have to eat hamburgers instead of eating seek kebabs because you know that's more easily available it's not like they want to eat hamburgers it's just that you know they do it out of necessity but in this case when it comes to canadian hockey it is something that you know uh, South Asian uh, Canadians have you know taken on a sort of affirmatively and consciously because it actually makes them feel much more Canadian I mean they like wearing their Toronto maple leaf jerseys and they like going to Scotia Bank uh, you know and feeling like they are participating in uh you know some cultural aspect of their adopted country that makes them feel you know more like everybody else so it's kind of you know in that sense it's defying what's, hap- what's happened in Canadian hockey has kind of defines uh, defies sort of conventional wisdom in the academic literature on how assimilation takes place.
0: And you, you spent a good chunk of time in the article talking about hockey culture in the sense of uh, those who watch it and those who enjoy it at home and those who may go to games. But of course, you also talked about hockey culture, for for instance, uh, the, the young kids that, that want to play uh, hockey and, and join a team or or what have you and specifically of course young C- seek kids and you say that of course there are still some problems and I'd like to discuss that as well because in the article again I, I found this was a very good place for people to to really think about the kind of environments that they're creating going forward for everybody. And and you say, and I'll quote you in your article, you said unfortunately Lack of diversity doesn't necessarily stem from racism, but can it can offer a fertile soil for it. And and then you right. of course discuss how a lot of uh, young kids, of course, specifically minorities in this case, will will maybe join a team and, and face some from some obstacles, including sometimes outright racism. And uh, you say that the perception that hockey is a sport that has not been welcoming to minorities and women that's that's not an altogether accurate uh, perception, unfortunately. So what we've seen is that. Uh, According to your article, a lot of young Sikhs, for instance, they're joining hockey teams and trying to get more involved because they say it makes them feel more Canadian, but there's still obstacles.
1: Right. So, you know, one of the interesting things about hockey that I discovered once I got into, you know, sort of the research of this article, and I'm, I'm, you know, not a sports fan and, you know, I rarely follow any sports. But it was interesting. One of the interesting things I found was that the color barrier in hockey... Uh, lasted a whole decade longer than it did, for instance, in baseball. So, you know, uh, when Jackie uh, Robinson, uh, uh, you know, he kind of broke the color line and he uh, joined uh, you know, baseball, I think it was in 1948, whereas ho- hockey did not uh, welcome its first black uh, player um William Ree, who was a Black Canadian player until 19, uh, 1958, and uh, I'm, and I'm talking about the NHL over here. So. And even now, I mean, it's hard to get very accurate data on uh, the, you know, sort of the composition, the breakdown of various ethnic groups in hockey. But it's pretty clear, for instance, uh, blacks are definitely a very, very small minority in hockey. So as best as I could find in the NHL. You know, out of 700 total players, only 25 are black. And only four of them are, and only four out of Asian descent. And so 93% of the league is, is white. And this, this lack of diversity, you know, creates a problem. Uh, it becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, if you have a lot of whites, then colored, you know, people and minorities don't feel like this is a place for them. And so they, you know, they stay out. And what compounds this problem is that, you know, hockey as a sport, it's like, you know, when two teams are fighting, I mean, or playing hockey, they're like fighting tribes, right? I mean, it's like two tribes that are going to battle, and they will use any psychological trick at their disposal in order to intimidate the other side. So if that means, you know, hurling racial slurs at uh, your uh, opponent. They will do that. So there are instances of sort of a lot of like racial name calling in hockey up and down, you know, the leagues. I mean, the junior leagues at the amateur level and at the professional level. And P.K. Subban, who is, uh, you know, one of the black players in NHL, I mean, he has himself suffered like all kinds of racist incidents. And these racist incidents, interestingly, become worse, the better that these players do, because the other side feels the feels the need to attack them. You know, so P.K. sort of describes that every time he'd score, uh, you know, a goal, there were Twitter would kind of light up. With racial insults towards him. And it's very this is all very discouraging for the younger players. I mean, once you're old and, you know, you kind of like you, you're you get a thicker skin. But if you're younger and in a formative stage, it can be a huge turn off. And so a lot of black players actually do stay out of the game for that reason. Uh, there have been, you know, a number of st- stories that have been done. Uh, Courtney Stowes, who's actually a professor, uh, a, a Canadian professor, uh, her, you know, she's at the uh, Queen's University in Ontario. Um, you know, she's done a whole study of sort of the lack of diversity and this problem of sort of racism that emerges. The interesting thing is if you dig a little deeper You know, you realize that this racism is not serious in the sense that people who are hurling these racist slurs, they are not doing it because they really believe those things about, you know, the people they are insulting. They are just saying it to get under their skin. And it is in a way easy to overcome this, you know, this not i wouldn 't say easy, but it 's not impossible to overcome this racial barrier and hernerion actually is active proof of that. I mean hernerion has become extremely popular, as you know I said a little while ago not just among the South Asian community, but broader hockey community. I mean, everybody knows him. Wayne Gretzky knows him. Wayne Gretzky at one event actually went and, you know, shook his hand and said, hey, I'm a big fan of yours. And of course, Harna Ryan kind of died and went to heaven when that happened. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, uh, Horner Ryan. I, I mean, uh, you, uh, you know this. Uh, Don Cherry, who recently got fired, right for yes. uh, saying, you know, a few racist things or or anti-immigrant things, uh, questioning their patriotism. Uh, you know, when that happened, there were many people who were suggesting that Harnarayan Ryan should be his replacement. And the reason is not actually for diversity reasons, but the fans, hockey fans just respect his encyclopedic knowledge about the game. I mean, you know, he can rattle off all these numbers and stats and players and what have you, you know, just off, just, you know, off the top of his head. And they really, really respect that. And so, you know, there are old stock, white Canadian broadcasters who cannot, you know, who haven't survived as well and aren't as popular in many ways, as Harna Ryan is. And so if there was endemic racism, right, I mean, that wouldn't happen. I mean, this Hernarayan, I mean, if you look at him, he he's not trying to mask the fact that he's a Sikh, right? I mean, he he's, like I said, very observant. And he he you know carries his religion and his ethnicity on his sleeve, on his face. And yet it's not a barrier. That is, you know, man with this long flowing beard and this turban. Uh, you know, should become in some ways the face of hockey. And so, I mean, at the end of it, you know, when I started researching this story, I was kind of disturbed by sort of this, you know, all these incidents of racism that I was reading about. But the more I got into it, I realized that, you know, yeah, it's there, but it's not serious. So it's an obstacle, but it's actually not an insurmountable obstacle for minorities if they want to get into the game.
0: I mean, it's certainly comforting to hear that, especially as you've done all the research and looked into it, that a lot of these incidents of, of racism are thankfully not grounded in some deep, serious rooted racism. As you said, people often have ulterior motives. They're trying to, you know, psychologically, uh, uh, you know, throw people off their game. It comes from a lot of that. But but shifting gears a bit, unfortunately, I guess, in the same vein as the Don Cherry thing you brought up, that there are a lot of people that still, um, from a broader cultural perspective, maybe outside of hockey, even that. Still, do have these these deep-rooted negative sentiments. Uh, you know, for instance, that uh, you know Donald Trump had the comment about the, the shithole countries, and and ultimately all of this yeah. thing, this thing like on the Don Cherry side on the one hand, or the Donald Trump comment on the other. Unfortunately, this is still comes from the deep-rooted idea that immigrants, especially from certain countries, are ultimately coming here, wherever that is, and going to have a negative impact on culture and norms. And then of course the ultimate card is pulled out, uh, they might have they might be a threat to Western culture or whatever whatever that ends up meaning in, in that conversation. So right. I in all your research and all your thinking on this, I just wanted to ask you. Where do you think that sentiment comes from? When we put aside the people with, let's call it superficial racism and racist comments, like at a hockey game or something, and we get to the deep rooted stuff, where, where do you think the, the deeper rooted sentiment comes from? Like, who's pushing this idea and, and what does it encompass and, and where are they really coming from?
1: So, you know, this idea that uh, immigrants and foreigners uh, will change who we are, it's not new, right? I mean, right. In, uh, in the United States, it actually goes back to the founders, Thomas Jefferson used to worry that, uh, you know, you allow European uh, immigrants from uh, monarchy uh, monarchies to come in and they will not come with sufficiently what he called Republican values, you know, values of not like the Republican Party, but values of self-governance mm-hmm. because they are monarchies. And so he worried that, you know, American democracy may not be able to uh, survive mass immigration from, you know, European monarchies. Ben uh, Franklin famously, you know, did not like Germans. I mean, and he was deeply afraid that uh, Germans won't, uh, you know, they will not get anglicized, as he said, but they'll Germanize us. And so, you know, there has been a perennial worry of, you know, uh, foreigners coming in and changing who we are changing our basic values, our, you know, political commitments. And it's never come to pass, right? I mean, they can these people come, immigrants come for a certain reason. And the literature shows actually, the academic literature on this shows that, you know, there's a big sta- status quo bias among immigrants. They want to be just like everybody else. So if the dominant political values are sort of progressive, they too will become, you know, progressive. If the dominant political values Values are uh, conservative, you know, they too will have a conservative streak in them, you know, by and large. Uh, so, you know, but this fear, of course, doesn't go away because they just they just look different. And this process takes a period, you know, some period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. And You know, and if you have a lot of immigrants or relatively more immigrants than people are used to, just the very presence of these people, you know, who look different, who sometimes, you know, smell different, who behave different can cause these worries to arise. But, you know, what we see is that they never really pan out. Immigrants always come and assimilate. Uh, You know, they will to some extent change their, uh, change the host culture for the better uh, very often. Uh, but, you know, but they do assimilate.
0: Going back to something I think you you said before as well is that ultimately there there is some sort of happy medium between assimilation and also respecting and celebrating the culture of the country that you're from. As you said, um, it's not as if uh, let, let's take the example again in Canada for for hockey and Sikhs. It's not as if they they throw away everything they they came uh, to the country with in the back of their heads. They, they they may join a hockey team or start cheering for a hockey team and enjoy the sport, but that doesn't mean that they're they're completely uh, forgetting about where they came from and again, celebrating their culture. So it definitely seems that there is a happy medium struck at some point with with most immigrants.
1: Right. No, absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, this is my own sort of uh, theory, which is that um, in some ways, the less you force them to give up of their uh, of their you know home cultures, the more they feel at home in their adopted culture, and more quickly the assimilation process happens. So for instance, you know, if if Sikh immigrants, let's take Sikh immigrants, you know, I'm from India, and many Sikh immigrants to both Canada and America came after 1984, where there was, uh, you know, after the Sikh bodyguard of the then Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, assassinated her, there was a widespread persecution of Sikhs. uh, I mean, violent persecution. There was, in fact, in New Delhi, I was there at that time. I was writing for a newspaper at that time in 1984. There was a mini pogrom of Sikhs in uh, New Delhi uh, as a retaliation for the assassination of Indira Gandhi. And Sikhs started feeling, you know, that India was not a safe country for them and they fled. Now, if they had come to the United States or Canada and been expected to give up their religion, The reason that they were fleeing India, uh, you know, that would have been difficult for them and they wouldn't have done it. Uh, And that would have created tension you know with the uh, with the host country but the very fact that they had like the freedom to observe their religion as they saw fit gave them sort of a secure space to kind of like slowly loosen their grip and adopt the ways of their new uh, homeland in a natural spontaneous way in a way that they didn't feel like they were giving up anything that this was just an adjustment that they have to make to their host culture for their own sake and for, you know, for other reasons. So this process happens much more naturally when you don't make formal demands, programmatic demands from immigrants that they give up this or that, or they prove their loyalty in this or that fashion, or they, you know, do these 10 things to prove that they are Canadian or American or what have you. It just happens automatically as they become more comfortable, which is why, I worry so much about the hostility to immigrants these days that you are seeing in the United States. You know, the more you are questioning their assimilation, right, the more of a hostile place you are creating for them and more, and the more they are going to cling to their old ways and their old habits because they will just feel like they are under siege. And so in a way, I mean, it's counterintuitive, but the very demands that you make make it harder for them to assimilate.
0: Yeah, that makes a a lot of sense. And actually that reminds me, I I believe it was Alex Narasta we had on our podcast a few episodes ago who was talking about almost exactly the same thing that uh, when you really look at the studies and and the stats, uh, if there is generally no uh, direct pressure on immigrants with, as you were saying, this idea to assimilate and give up your own culture and join our culture that within a generation or so, they're, they're fairly uh, assimilated. That's what will happen if it happens naturally. Whereas anytime there's been, as I think you specifically talking about American history in this case, but anytime in history, at least in the States, that there's been where people are trying to force some, for, some sort of assimilation, that's when people buckle down, as you said, and really hang on to their culture because they feel like someone's trying to pry it out of their hands. He even brought up the silly example where people were hoping hoping that Germans would stop calling sauerkraut uh, sauerkraut and they would start calling it liberty cabbage like it gets to like ridiculous (laughs) levels (laughs) so so that it just reminds me of that and I I think that's 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 excellent because as you said nobody wants their culture and their what they feel is their identity ripped out of their hands
1: right exactly and you know there's another great example of this I mean the uh, you know Muslim immigrants in America which are very small percentage of uh, American population right I mean they're less than 2% uh, uh, and muslim women you know were assimilating you know in every way i mean they are actually the most educated of any you know, uh, ethnic group, uh, Muslim women. I actually wrote a piece called Muslim in America, where I looked at, uh, uh, you know, I live in Michigan and uh, in Metro Detroit and Metro Detroit is home to the largest Arab population outside of the Middle East. And I looked at two cities, Dearborn, which is very heavily Arab and Muslim, and Hamtramck, which is smaller, but also, you know, dominant Muslim population. And, you know, Hamtramck is a place where the, the Muslims sort of first land. It's kind of working class and they that's kind of their launching pad because it's a very, you know, it's a very inexpensive little town. Uh, it's very, you know, it's friendly to immigrants in many ways. You know, Polish immigrants, came, uh, German immigrants came there and then Polish immigrants came there and then Eastern European immigrants came there. And now, you know, a lot of Muslim immigrants from Bangladesh and all over the world come use it as a launching pad and then move to the suburbs. And, you know, if you and so you go to Hamtramck and you see a lot of women there wearing burqas because these are new immigrants. You know, burqas are this this long, you know, head to toe, uh, you know, sort of shroud like covering that Muslim women who are super observant wear. Uh, Dearborn, you see much less of that. Dearborn is where they move to. It's a somewhat more, uh, you know, it's a wealthier suburb. And this process of Muslim women losing their burqa or their hijab was were going on perfectly fine till after 9-11. And you saw all this, this Islamophobia crop up against Muslims. Uh, Muslims, by the way, in Dearborn, Arabs, voted for George Bush uh, 72% of them voted for George Bush at that time. Now that has completely switched because the Republican Party has become so hostile to immigrants. And now they are voting much more democratic, uh, Demo- uh, you know, for Demo- the Democratic Party. But, you know, but the uh, the women because they were getting more educated they were just going out more they just wanted to look like everybody else they were beginning to lose their hijab now the hijab has had a resurgence because they feel besieged and they want to hang on to their traditions because they don't they you know they feel that if they don't stick up for their identity as you said it'll just be wrested out of their hands and they don't want that and so it's like you know the less you say the more assimilation you know, you get.
0: And I think that's actually an excellent place to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Shikha Dalmia. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask@liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Bryce Tingle, Christopher McDonald, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Shaka Dalmia. Shaka, b- before the break, I-, I think we were having a great conversation. I want to shift gears a little bit. There's an interesting uh, concept you can explore in another one of your articles titled Conservative Nationalists, Not Immigrants, Are Having Trouble Assimilating in America. And I thought that was a really interesting title as a hook. And I, I read the whole article and-, and I enjoyed it. And ultimately, the point... That you bring up, I think, is summarized from a quote in that article that I pulled. And and here it is. You say, conservatives who care for their movement's integrity and their country's identity ought to worry less about imaginary external threats and more about the real ones emerging from their own camp. And there, I think the point you were trying to get across is that all of the uh, sentiments and values that a lot of people who would identify as conservatives seem to hold near and dear, if they're not you know, t- too careful. I, sorry, if they're not careful enough, I should say, with the kind of anti-immigration sentiments that they're now poking and prodding, the pendulum swings right. back the other way. They become the people that aren't for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of movement. I thought that was, that was an excellent point that you made.
1: Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what the conversation in uh, Canada is about immigrants on this core, but in America, you know, even... Classical liberals like you and me are becoming very sympathetic to this idea that you know you let immigrants in, and immigrants come from you know socialistic countries very often, uh, Latin America, you know Brazil, when, well, Brazil is all right, I suppose, but Venezuela and you know whatnot, and uh, you know these are, and you know they are used to these big government polities. and so they come to America. And they want big government solutions to their problems. So they overwhelmingly vote for the Democrats because Democrats are for the welfare state. And so the slam of the right wing against immigrants, which has been a very powerful slam, slam has been that you know, the welfare state will grow. Up. It turns out it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, that doesn't exactly happen that way. But you know, But my point in this article was, that the welfare state is only one. even if you grant everything that they are saying, the welfare state is only, you know, one aspect of liberty. There are many other aspects of liberty that conservatives in their zeal to go after immigrants and trade, actually, frankly, as this president is doing, are giving up on all kinds of other liberty aspects. So, for instance, you know, the the. Uh, F.A. Hayek, who is, you know, one of my great, great sort of intellectual influences on me, he pointed to the danger not just of socialism, but he also pointed to the danger of economic nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. And economic nationalism is, what is that? It's basically, in many ways, America firstism, that, you know, we are going to plan the central economy in such a way that it, uh, you know, it is for... Only the people, the citizens of this country. And, and, you know, but what does that mean? For Donald Trump, that means buy American, hire American directives. He has gone so far as to say things like, you know, uh, uh, any foreign uh, company uh, uh, that wants to establish itself has to establish itself in America. So he he gave Foxconn massive subsidies. to to set up a factory in Wisconsin, uh, you know, corporate welfare, so to speak. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he doesn't want Ford Motor Company to decide uh, where it can most uh, cost-effectively set up factories. He wants to force, force, you know, tell Ford Motor Company to do its so-called patriotic duty and stay in America. Um, you know, he calls uh, the press that questions some of what he's saying, uh, enemy of the people, which is sta- straight, uh, you know, straight out of the Stalinist playbook. And, you know, he goes after immigrants like uh, Ilan Omar, you know, who is the Democratic uh, congresswoman from Minnesota because she happens to be Muslim. And he goes after AOC, uh, who's got... Um, you know, Latin American heritage. He's telling all these people, you know, that they don't really belong in America because, uh, you know, they are of a different ethnicity. He questions their religion. So which means he is also against, you know, religious freedom. And all of this, instead of conservatives saying, no, these are Abrogations of these core foundational liberty, freedom values that we all believe in, those very same conservatives who are slamming immigrants because they hey they may increase the size of the welfare state, have no problem cheering politicians like Trump on at this stage. Even though you know I would say they are abrogating you know, freedom of the press, freedom of, uh, you know, freedom to put your factories where you want to, freedom of religion and all kinds of other core American values in a much, much more fundamental way. So it's like, you know, so my point over there was, hey, you know, you guys don't even know what you, you know, your own values require you to do. And you've been living in this country supposedly for 200 years, right? And, And here you are, you know, picking on immigrants because they may expand the welfare state you know, like by 10 percent or whatever. So that's kind of what I was trying to say, that you haven't understood your own values enough to fully assimilate into the intellectual and the philosophical orientation of your country. So you really have no right to pick uh, you know, pick on immigrants who've just arrived
0: here. Right. And in some cases, like like you, for instance, you brought up the, the scare that a lot of some of these folks that call themselves conservatives uh, have, which is, oh, they're going to expand the welfare state. And then you really get into conversations with some of these people or even read the articles that they publish, the things they publish themselves. And it turns out that they've even, as you said, abandoned that principle. They're not really against the welfare state. What they're against is certain kinds of people that look a certain way getting access to right. the welfare state. So you're, you're totally right that, that ultimately a lot of this uh, discussion on immigration, and which is in part of a broader discussion on change, ultimately, and, and progress to some degree, is, is creating a situation where a lot of conservatives, whether they know it or not, are actually abandoning their bedrock principles. And I just want to actually tie it up with a quote from you, again, in, in that same article where, where you said, conservatives are preaching a full-scale abandonment of America's bedrock commitments to capitalism, democracy, religious pluralism, and individual liberty— And you go on to say they accuse immigrants of not assimilating in America, but Quote: They themselves are dissimilating from America, and I thought that was a very interesting concept too. And then you go on to also essentially talk about that the current right wing leanings we, back on the economic discussion go beyond things like crony capitalism, right into command capitalism almost at, at some right. points, right? Because we're telling factories that they should be built here and 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 not there. And, and as you, as you said that that's pretty crazy stuff. If if this if different kinds of fears of of in this case immigrants, for example, and economic change can can make you abandon what you're supposedly preaching as your core principles.
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that really kind of shocked me was that uh, Yoram Hazoni, who has written this book, he's an Israeli uh, uh, political theorist, and he's written this book called The Virtue of Nationalism, right? And he right. has kind of become the intellectual godfather of this neo- neo right which is you know floating with a very sort of like aggressive form of nationalism and he actually held a conference in uh, on conservative nationalism in DC last year uh, last fall which was attended by sort of the who's who of the conservative movement you know all the people who don't like immigrants because they may uh, uh, ex- vote for the welfare state and yoram hazoni one of the things that he Said at this conference is that uh, it is time to declare independence from what they call classical liberalism. Now, classical liberalism, his in his view, is sort of you know John Locke's philosophy of limited go- limited government and individual rights. That the job of the government you know is to protect everybody's liberties and you know not do too much else now given that thomas jefferson essentially relied on classical liberalism when he you know in in his declaration of independence and his notion of you know that the government should leave us alone to pursue our life liberty and happiness as we see fit hazoni is you know explicitly rejecting the founding you know of america the founding ethos of america and yet you know the conservatives gathered over there who tell elan omar to go back to her own country cheered him on at that time i mean to me that's kind of like a shocking thing right i mean these you know they they don't want america to change they want america to be to stay true to its foundational values and yet here is a man who's telling them Forget about classical liberalism. And they say, yay. I mean, you know, that I mean, it's a pretty stunning moment in American, you know, in the rights evolution in America.
0: I think it perfectly demonstrates the contrast between whether uh, somebody is for a certain set of fundamental values or on the other hand, in in fact for a certain type of people or a certain unity or a certain form of collectivism. Right. So as I said, that, 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 that completely illustrates the contrast. I'd like to move to something else here too, because um, often when we talk about this sort of, let's call it the the fusionism, the odd crossover sometimes that happens between uh, conservatives and classical liberals. Milton Friedman, who was a classical liberal, is often invoked as a proponent of immigration restriction by some people that call themselves conservatives. Um, they, they like to use one of his um, quotes about not being able to have floods of immigrants and a welfare state simultaneously. You also wrote how conservatives are invoking this statement that Milton Friedman made, both in the fact that it's, it's, it's out of context and also they're, they're completely Misunderstanding his his meaning at that point as well.
1: Right. So yeah. So you know, Milton Friedman and this one offhand remark that he made that uh, open borders and the welfare state are not you know are not compatible. they have weaponized that statement to literally justify, you know, some really draconian restrictions on immigration, which Friedman would never, ever have supported. Now, you know, Friedman was a big, big believer in immigration, you know, in immigration and partly because he was Jewish and his parents immigrated from Hungary. And he, you know, he knows if America had not allowed uh, them to come, you know, come to to this country, um, you know, he wouldn't be standing over there. And, you know, he said things like new immigrants provide additional resources, provide additional possibilities for the people who are already here. So he was a you know, big believer in the economic and the cultural benefits of immigrants. I mean, immigrants to him, you know, weren't just sort of a drag on the economy, consuming resources. Immigrants to him, you know, made vital contributions that made the economy expand and grow and make everybody's life better off because, you know, they provide both their physical uh, and their mental labor to the country, right? And, but, but what he said was that, and the other thing he said was that illegal immigration to America is hugely beneficial right uh, and the, you know, which none of the people who invoke him will ever acknowledge. I mean he would have he would be turning in his grave at the, some of the draconian things that you know Trump is doing rights uh building his border wall, there's uh deportation raids that you know where they are sending ice squads into Latino communities and hauling people out of their homes because they don't have the right papers and putting them in detention camps. I mean, you know, Friedman would have been horrified by all of that, both for economic reasons and just for on humanitarian and, you know, on humanitarian grounds. But, you know, what he did, what he said was that illegal immigration is actually very good for the country because illegal immigrants come over here and they work really hard and they are not entitled to any welfare benefits or not a whole lot of welfare benefits. So we get the benefit of their labor, but they don't get the benefits of public services that everybody else gets. And so he thought illegal immigration was a great bargain for the United States. Not that it was necessarily a defensible thing, but he thought it was a great, great bargain for the United States. But he also said that in some ways, if you legalize them, then you know they will become entitled to various welfare services, and then they will you know strain the welfare system. Now that's the part that has become weaponized, and you know, and f- I respect Friedman a whole whole lot, but he was actually not completely right about that part either, because you know it's not like immigrants don't uh, contribute to the welfare state. They they grow the economic pie a whole lot, but they also grow the welfare or they also, you know, grow the the treasury or the revenues right. uh, through the ta- through the taxes they pay. Right. And so it's a bar- it's not a, if you look at all the studies on immigrant consumption of welfare, it's not at all clear that immigrants on the whole. Uh, you know, use more than they uh, pay into the welfare system. In fact, it's the reverse. Almost every study shows that on the whole, immigrants pay far more into the welfare state, uh, welfare system than they consume. And there is a very good reason for that. And the reason, there are two reasons, actually. One reason is that most immigrants come to, you know, their new country in their peak productive years, right, when they are, just beginning to work in their 20s and their 30s. And that means that some other country has made all the investment in them, you know, has paid the price of educating them and nourishing them and, you know, letting them mature and come to that point. And just when they are about to become productive, the new country that they go to harnesses all the benefits. And so that saves, you know, the host country from, you know a whole a whole lot uh, and then secondly you know the reason they uh, uh, you know they are a bargain for at least in the american context is that if you look at the transfer of wealth in america it doesn't happen from the rich to the poor it happens from the young to the old and since immigrants are you know overwhelmingly young they end up contributing to in fact you know, sort of the Social Security and the Medicare and all these other retiree benefits that what old stock Americans benefit from. And so it is by no means clear that even in the current context, immigrants are actually not a boon to the welfare state. And interestingly, Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman, who himself is a pretty brilliant economist, uh, you know, took on his dad on that score and felt his dad actually kind of uh, didn't get that right.
0: And tying it back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation as well, is the immigrants don't uh, just uh, assimilate in different ways uh, culturally, economically as well. I mean, like if you just think of everyday action, if they go to the store and buy an item and then they have to pay sales tax on it, well, that sales tax doesn't somehow get rerouted to their pocket, right? They're contributing, as you said, to the to the treasury. They're, they're starting to assimilate with not only a social way of life, but but an economic way of life as well. And the fact is that... People, who I guess in Canada, again, we could refer to them as old stock Canadians or wherever they are. They aren't comp- sometimes in some cases contributing as much as some immigrants are to the system. So there is ultimately a balance factor and, and different people from different walks of life contribute more or less depending on their circumstance. But as you were saying, it's certainly not a burden that we can place on a group that we just label as immigrants, that they're not somehow contributing as much as others. That doesn't seem to be borne out by the facts.
1: Right. And, you know, David Friedman actually pointed out that immigrants may get some things that they don't pay for, but they also pay for a lot of things that they don't get. Right. And so, you know, so it kind of like, you know, how it all uh, shakes out, is, uh, you know, not as simplistic, oh, they are, you know, they are straining the welfare system and they are uh, you know, consuming too much welfare. It's not, you know, it's it's really not as simple as that.
0: And, and, and our time is winding down a little bit here, but one more thing I did want to get in be, before we, we conclude the episode was that there's also, so we talked about uh, social considerations in terms of assimilation and, and culture. We've talked about economic considerations. One thing that's often talked about when it comes to a certain, at least certain communities is, is safety and and what you know the kinds of uh um danger that certain groups bring into certain towns let's say you wrote an article discussing a statement by Donald Trump a, a while back that he said that his wall had in fact made El Paso safer but but you actually right. use this as a case study to show that no no in fact uh Im- immigrants have actually made El Paso safer right
1: and uh, you know if you look at the uh the data or, I mean El Paso has about you know 700,000 residents and if you look at other cities of the same size. It's really interesting. I mean, the border cities of that same size are where there is a disproportionate, you know, presence of immigrants and not just immigrants, but unauthorized immigrants tend to have a far lower, uh, you know, crime rate, both in terms of homicides or violent crimes and property crimes. Uh, That is true for El Paso. That's true for San Diego. uh, It's true for uh, Tucson and Phoenix in Arizona. And it is, and there have been several studies, you know, that, suggest that it's not, you know, despite the presence of the immigrants, it's because of the presence of the immigrants. And the reason is, again, you know, these people who are fleeing from, you know, either destitution or persecution in their own countries, they are coming here to make a better life for themselves, right? I mean, they are, you know, they want jobs, they want economic opportunity. They don't, you know, they don't want, uh, trouble with the law. That's not what they are here for. And so they are extra, you know, they really keep on the straight and narrow. They, uh, uh, you know, is just kind of part of their aspiration is to, you know, not get mixed up in, you know, in crime and, you know, what have you, and which will give Their children a worse lifestyle than they would have had at home. Those are precisely the conditions that they want to escape. So they are unusually peace-loving. I mean, they are more peace-loving than your average American. In fact, assimilation into America, you know, by the first generation actually means worsening the crime rate of these immigrants. So it's in a way, it's much better for America that they don't assimilate into America, you know, in that respect and don't Mm -hmm. become like the like the average American, it would be much better for them to stick to their ways and stick to their aspirations and stick to their habits. And, you know, and, uh, you know, just work hard and get ahead, which is what they you know, which is what they do. And so the irony is that, um, you know, America's Border Patrol spending, uh, uh, the, the border, you know, Border Patrol agents in America have gone up from 5,000 in 1998 before 9 11 to 22,000 now. And spending, you know, uh, Customs and Border Protection Agency, you know, spending uh, there has gone up like threefold since 2003. It stands at 17 billion now. I spending has similarly gone up, you know, by two times. And, you know, and we are, you know, spending so much on this draconian and expensive immigration enforcement when, you know, these people are not making any trouble for us. Border towns are the safest places that you could possibly be. So it's like, you know, if fiscal conservatives were worried about government, you know, waste, wasteful spending, it's the one thing that they would try to, you know, cut down on, not ramp up as this administration has been doing. Um, uh, actually, uh, Beto O'Rourke had a great, uh, you know, he was a big opponent. He's dropped out of the race now uh, a long time ago, but he was a, he really took on Donald Trump for that statement that you mentioned. And, you know, he pointed out that uh, in one year, the average apprehensions a border patrol agent makes in El Paso is four. I mean, people are just not coming across the border as much. I mean, that's, you know, four apprehensions per Border Patrol agent. And we are spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on it. I mean, it's it's really quite remarkable.
0: If there's any fiscal conservatives that are serious about that uh, kind of Fiscal conservatism left, and you're listening to this. Consider that—that's for sure. Uh, when you kind of run the numbers on this stuff, especially when it comes to the other discussion of public choice and and how government bureaucracies creep and always want more funding. Um, if you're if you're a fiscal conservative or anyone, quite frankly, and and you point to some sort of news article where it says that oh the uh, this government department's expert says they need more funding, just think twice about that and what's actually going on there. Um, Right and uh, right and, and before we and I'm looking at the time again. I want to get one more sort of discussion from you before we actually formally wrap up. And so there's this narrative that that exists that basically compares and contrasts the United States outlook and approach to immigration and philosophy around immigration, or should I say cultural assimilation, actually, more specifically to the Canadian one. And people often like to say (laughs) that the US is more like a melting pot, whereas the Canadian uh, society is more like a mosaic where people integrate and there's a lot of differences and ultimately comes together to form one image. First, I'd like to ask you, do you buy... That uh, standard narrative, and if so, or if not, uh, do you think one it would be better than the other?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny you should ask this question because I—it's the kind of thing I, you know, I can't somehow I have not come to any clarity in my own, you know, head about these two apparently different models of, uh, you know, ass, not, I suppose not assimilating or integrating immigrants. I mean, to me, uh you know i i don't think it's a it's a it's great if immigrants uh just live in their own little enclaves and never interact with you know any other american but i don't think that ever happens i mean they are not coming over yes initially when they come they have a little bit more of a you know, comfort level with their own kind. They are a little insecure about how you mainstream uh, society will greet them and they try and, you know, they stick to their own kind. But as their confidence level increases, you know, they venture out, they assimilate, they intermarry and, you know, and, and what have you. And to me, you know, The debate between sort of the multiculturalism and the or I'm sorry, the melting pot and the Canadian multiculturalism uh, mosaic idea is a little bit artificial. You know, Mm -hmm. it all depends upon what they want. I mean, I am not, you know, I'm a Hayakian and I am all right with whatever like the spontaneous actions of immigrants suggest they want. You know, maybe they will cling to a little bit more of their own traditions and be a little bit removed from mainstream society, though not completely removed as it's happening in Canada, or they will completely blend in and nobody will know, you know, five generations from now where somebody came from. I mean, I- you know, so long as they are all getting ahead, right? I mean, they are all making economic gains, they are useful, productive, contributing members of their society, they are not creating any, you know, uh, sort of crime problems or any other kinds of problems. I mean, I, frankly, I don't really care whether they melt or they maintain their own little ethnic ways. I mean, Irish Americans in uh, America still uh, observe St. Patrick's Day. Is that a problem for us? I mean, I don't think so. Strictly speaking, it's not the melt. Uh, you know, it's not the melting pot model, right? I mean, because they are not only celebrating Christmas and they're not only celebrating Easter. They are also introduced a new holiday called the St. Patrick's Day. Is that a problem? Indian immigrants, you know, three generations from now, if they are still celebrating Diwali. Or you know, some of their own festivals, is that a problem? I mean, I don't think so. Hispanics, if they want to celebrate Cinco de Mayo Day, is that a problem? I mean, I don't think so. It all just sort of you know, it's all part of the mix and so long as uh, it's not creating any problems for anybody. I mean, I you know, I don't really know uh, why we should make become hostage to these artificial constructs of how we want them to look.
0: It makes sense. No, no. The idea that, you know, number one, we have to pick a method or, or an idea of the melting pot of the mosaic is, is a weird thing to begin with that we have to pick one. And on the other hand, then we try and push for it. That's another odd idea, too. As you said, right. back to Hayekian principles, it's better we have a form of emergent and spontaneous order. And we actually hope things happen from the bottom up from the market, if you will, not from any top down idea. So I, I, that total that answer totally makes sense for sure. I, so our time has pretty much wound down here i'd like to end the episode uh by uh doing what we always like to do which is actually to give the guest the last word so we talked about a lot let's bring it full circle try to put a finer point on our exploration of the question so i'll ask you what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here today on what the story about indian immigrants saving canadian hockey tells us and about immigration and culture more generally
1: um yeah so you know I am a big believer in uh, hybridization. Uh, you know, some of the conversation that we are having boils down to two completely different and competing ideas of what you want a society to be like, right? A culture to be like. Do we want it to be sort of homogeneous and pure and stick to its, you know, long-standing ways, or do you we want it to be sort of heterogeneous, hybridized? Uh, with many different things happening at the same time so that, you know, we get a different kind of a mix, a different kind of hybridization and change. I, you know, I think a country shouldn't have a living constitution necessarily, but I do think it should have a living culture that is constantly evolving and producing new syntheses and, you know, new ways of being. And i think that's what immigration essentially does it's uh, there's a concept called heterosis in uh, you know in uh, uh, in the literature and heterosis is basically that when you put you know many principles together different competing principles together what you get out of them is a certain sorting out and the sorting out sor- sorts out you know, the bad ways and the bad things of all these various principles and the good ones become a new way forward. And I think that, I mean, and I think that's kind of what the hockey story tells us, right? I mean, Herner Ryan Singh, one of the things actually we did not get into one aspect of the story was the contributions that Herner Ryan Singh is not just making, to the game, but to the broadcasting traditions in hockey. So, you know, uh, uh, Courtney, the professor I mentioned, she said that Canadian hockey uh, broadcast used to be very stodgy. you know, sort of these very sort of uh, public broadcasting kind of like style, um, very prim and proper. And Herner you know, very different sensibility to to the whole uh, broadcast. I mean, he's uh, you know, it's part Bollywood, it's part uh, you know, re- worldwide wrestling, it's part sort of you know, it's very uh, very very lively, and so he has. Produce, he has made a whole different stylistic contribution to the broadcasting hockey tradition, and it will lead to something new and different, which will improve the listening experience and the viewing experience of. Uh, you know, uh, hockey hockey fans. And that to me is kind of like the model of how cultural dynamism and cultural innovation happens when you allow immigrants to come and, you know, just let them do their own thing.
0: And I think that's an excellent place to end it. So we'll do so. Everyone, thank you very much for tuning in. Shaka, thank you very much for being with me here today on The Curious Task.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.